It's one phrase that I hope you will leave today feeling and understanding. It is what they deserve. It is what they deserve. As Steve said in his prayer, these are hard things. Potentially easier to understand, more difficult to bear. It is what they deserve. I'm going to spend the morning in Revelation chapter 16, showing how Revelation speaks to the wrath of God on those who give themselves to the worship of idols, both now and at the end of time. And that the main emphasis of this chapter for us today is to know that it is what they deserve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to open up your word and we need your help. We need your help by your Spirit to understand it rightly. We need your help by your Spirit to grasp it and the weight of it, to feel it. We need your help to apply it and to live it. Would you help us in this way today? For your glory, for our joy, in Christ's name, amen. Well, we have not been in the book of Revelation for some time. We are getting back into the book of Revelation, jumping back into chapter 16. And as you've heard Marilyn read for us, wrath shows up multiple times in this section. Well, it's a nice, nice soft introduction back into the book of Revelation. Without spending too much time today kind of revisiting everything that we've been discussing in the book of Revelation back in 2021, three things that I would say about Revelation just to help us grasp our bearing. What's going on in the book of Revelation? Three main things in short. Number one, the book of Revelation is revealing. It's not concealing. The book of Revelation is a revelation. It's not meant to be undeciphered, confusing, enigmatic. The very first word is the revelation, the apocalypse. That, that word apocalypse means the revealing. God is trying to show us something, not hide something from us. So when it gets confusing, we're not to think that, well, we're not supposed to know. No, we're supposed to know things. And obvious, the most simple answer is the most obvious answer as to what is going on, what Christians need from this part of Revelation. Second thing about Revelation that we have said is that Revelation is explaining what is going on in our world now. And we have been teaching from the perspective that Revelation is explaining the world as we know it now until the time that Christ returns. 
that these things are not only limited to past events, that these things are not only limited to future events, that none of them have happened, none of them are happening, but rather that this is explaining heaven's relationship to earth now, as we'll see in our text today. And lastly, it's there to strengthen the church, to strengthen the church. The church ought to read the book of Revelation and not be confused or even figure out your interpretation of passages and be right about things. We ought to be encouraged. It's not just about knowing more things. It's about being strengthened as a Christian. So the revelation is here to reveal, not to conceal. It is here to explain what's going on in our world now, and it is there to strengthen the church. And that's exactly what Revelation chapter 16 is doing. It's revealing what God's going to do to those who are worshiping the beast and to the beast himself It's explaining what's going on in the world now and what God is going to do in the future. And it's there to strengthen the church. It's there to strengthen the church. And as I've said this morning, the main emphasis that I want to show us in Revelation chapter 16 is that it is what they deserve. That there's a little phrase here in the middle of the chapter, which is the emphasis of this chapter. So we're going to spend some time this morning. I'm very jealous for you to have your eyes on the Bible for a while this morning. And I'm not just going to launch from Scripture and say, let's read it, and then I'm just going to launch into my discussion of it. But I want you to see structurally how Revelation 16 is working. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the seven bowls of wrath that are poured out by these seven angels. We're going to look at them from the beginning to the end, and we're going to work our way back into the middle. We're going to look at one and seven, and then we're going to work our way and see how there are reciprocal themes in one and seven, two and six, three and five, and then the middle. You tracking? So that's going to be the order. So go ahead and look at Revelation 16 in your Bible and just see. We're going to start at the beginning and the end, and we're going to work our way into the middle. And just a little quick tip, you can see in chapter 16, it looks like a, a lot of narrative, but there's a break kind of the, towards the top middle. There, there's a phrase, someone's talking. Structurally, that stands out. That's what we're going to try to get from the end and from the beginning back into the middle. So we're going to look first at chapter 16, verse 1 and 17, and see the temple. The temple mentioned in chapter 16, verse 1, and chapter 16, verse 17. So look there, chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, where is the loud voice coming from? It's coming from the temple, telling all seven of the angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. We don't have time to go into numbers too far this morning, but that number seven is a perfection, the completeness, the holy number, the seven bowls of wrath, the full wrath of God. And that announcement to go pour out that wrath on the earth comes from where? Say it, where does it come from? It comes from the temple, it comes from the temple. Look in chapter 16, verse 17. Now go back to the end there. This is the seventh angel pouring out the seventh bowl of wrath. Chapter 16, verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came where? Out of the temple. From the throne, takes you back to Revelation 4 and 5, saying, it is done. Where does the command to go pour out the bowls come from? It comes from the temple. Where does the loud voice come from saying that now it is done? Where does it come from? Say it. The temple. So we see that the beginning 
and the end of the pouring out of the wrath comes from the temple. Why is this important when considering the wrath of God being poured out? It means from the beginning to the end, this wrath is being poured out from God. The explanation for why these things are happening, whatever is in between 16.1 and 16.17, they come from the command of the loud voice in the temple, from the throne. God, by beginning and ending with the temple, wants to take personal soul ownership for what is happening. This is his temple, his identity. We need to move quickly. The wrath of God is being poured out on the beast and those who worship him. That's what we'll see next. The wrath that is being poured out and is commanded from the temple is being poured out on the beast and those who worship him. So go back to chapter 16, verse 2 and 3, the next verses. What this chapter is becoming about is the wrath of God declared from the temple, but poured out on those who worship the beast. Now, who is the beast? It's been a while since we were there, but the beast, in short, is that demonic power whom Satan has given all of his power to oppose God and his people on the earth. On the earth, specifically. You can go back and see chapters 12 to 14. You may want to go back and listen to those sermons again. The beast is a false Christ figure in the narrative of Revelation. The beast is calling the whole world to forsake Jesus Christ, forsake God, and worship him instead. Look what it says in chapter 16, verse 2. So the first angel went out and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. This is not an indiscriminate pouring out of God's wrath. This is a direct surgical application of the wrath of God on those who have the mark of the beast that is those who have chosen to worship him, worshiping its image. Now go down to chapter 16, verse 12 and 13. See that sixth bowl. We're working from the other end back towards the middle. Chapter 16, verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, this unholy trinity, three unclean spirits like frogs, now again, we see the beast mentioned again on our way back inside into the middle. God's not pouring out his wrath willy-nilly across the world. This is on the beast and those who worship the beast. The kings of the earth who serve the beast, they will receive the wrath of God. But we're going to see next that we're getting closer to the meaning of the chapter and the highlight of the chapter. Go back to chapter 16, verses 3 through 6. Chapter 16, verse 3 through 6, and we're going to see the water turned to blood twice. And then we're going to see an angelic commentary on that water turning to blood. Chapter 16, verse 3 through 6, this is the second angel. He poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became, that wrath, it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl, the third bowl, into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. So you see the pattern. Bowl is poured out into water. The water becomes like blood. 
The bowl is poured into the water. The water becomes like blood. What's the point? What's the point of the water being turned to blood? Why is God doing this? Why are God's angels turning water into blood? It's not just a, a random judgment. It's not even first a reference to the Old Testament Exodus time. The angel in charge of the waters says it this way. Keep reading chapter 16, verse 5. And the angel in charge of the waters, those bowls that have just been poured out, the angel in charge of the waters say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Why did the waters turn to blood? Those who worshiped the beast and its image shed the blood of saints and prophets, so now they will drink blood. God is not just pouring out wrath indiscriminately. God here is exacting justice on those who have opposed him and his people. More specifically, God is, God is seeking a vengeance on those who shed the blood of the saints and the prophets. Those who spilled blood will drink blood. As the passage continues, we see the theme continue to develop that God is just in his execution of judgment. They spilled blood, they will drink blood. That, therefore, God is just. The altar speaks in verse 7. Keep reading in verse 7. We're going to kind of go through the middle and back to the middle. Chapter 16, verse 7. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord, God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So that's the commentary on everything that's happening, on all the wrath that's being poured out in this whole chapter. That's part of the commentary. The altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Now, why might the altar be saying that God's judgments are true and just? Look at chapter 16, verse 8 through 11. Chapter 16, verse 8 through 11 the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. So you see the pattern. Around and after the speeches, the altar says God's judgments are true and just. But when those who encountered and received the wrath of God, they cursed God and did not repent. And then again, they cursed God and did not repent. So we have this as kind of the inner structure around those speeches Bowl two and three are water turned to blood, and the angel announces they will drink blood because they shed blood. The altar announces that God is true and just. And then we have in bowl four and five the response of those who are receiving the wrath of God, saying that God is unjust, cursing him. 
The word that they cursed God means that they received the judgments of God. And instead of saying, you know what, God, that's what we deserve. You know what, God, <laughs> God you are good and just and right and fair. Instead, they cry out that God is unfair, that he is unjust, that the God of the universe is cursed because he's unjust, because he's wrong to do these things. The wrath of God comes from the temple and is poured out on the beast and those who worship him. What is it mainly about? What's the main point of this chapter? I think it's right in the middle. That little phrase in verse 6 Descriptive of everything that's happening in the chapter, everything, all the bowls seem to be defending and showing that it is what they deserve. This is not just God's wrath coming out because He just loves being so wrathful, but because this is deserved, this is just, this is true. Just let it sink in. The main point of the passage is that the beast and those who worship him are receiving what they deserve. Now some of you astute Bible scholars, maybe some of you cinematic fanatics, are going to say, wait a minute, what about Armageddon? We read through this that stuck up in my mind when Marilyn read that. What about Armageddon? I thought this passage was about the final battle of Armageddon. I thought we were going to get to talk about Armageddon today. I thought this passage was about the end of God's judgment and the final battle. Well, yes, but Revelation speaks about the coming of Christ and the finality of God's judgment in multiple ways through the book of Revelation, and in multiple times in the book of Revelation. My, my thoughts about Revelation have been as we teach, and totally fine if you uh, disagree with this and, and are wrong, but it seems that in Revelation, only, only kidding, mostly serious, that Revelation is a cycle of, of seven, and it's kind of taking turns telling the same history of the earth multiple times in different ways with different focus. So it seems like Christ returns multiple times in the book of Revelation, that it is showing us what his return means in this telling of history and in this version of history and this focus on history. So that this is not the first time in the book of Revelation that Christ seems to have arrived or Christ seems to have brought about the final end. So it begs the question, what is Armageddon about if this is not the one time? Well, I want us to go today beyond the understanding of Armageddon as Google. What have you know? When you type in Armageddon into Google, it brings you up pictures of Ben Affleck and Bruce Willis and the spaceship flying out into space to blow up a large hailstone, I'll call it, which is heading toward Earth and supposedly going to end the Earth. And thankfully, they save the earth. No one's going to save earth from what is coming in Revelation 16. No one. It's not a meteor shower that we can avoid, that we can build shelters for. What does Armageddon mean? 
The second understanding of Armageddon and some hold would be that it is a place near Israel where the last final battle between God and his enemies, enemies physically on the earth, between all the kings and all the nations, they are going to gather there physically. Just like Russia is now moving into or proposed to be moving towards and thinking about moving into Ukraine. There, there's going to be a battle where the kings of the earth, the armies of the earth, they gather around Armageddon, which is a place near Jerusalem. What is Armageddon really about in this chapter? Armageddon literally in Hebrew means the Mount of Megiddo. It may have been named as the site of the last battle because Israel's battles in the plain of Megiddo became a prophetic or typological symbol of the last battle. Let me read that sentence again. Armageddon literally means Mount of Megiddo, and it may have been named as the site of the last battle, used this way in prophetic language, because Israel's battles in the plain of Megiddo became a prophetic or typological symbol of the last battle. So, for example, in Judges chapter 4 and 5, the battle between Barak and Sisera took place in Megiddo. And it became kind of a short reference in Judah as a place where the righteous Israelites were grossly outnumbered and attacked by evil nations, but where God gave decisive victory by his power alone. So what is the point of mentioning Armageddon? Or what is the point of John mentioning the Mount of Megiddo in his vision? I don't think it's necessarily meant to be a geographical map where we look for the future final battle where it's going to take place. It seems to me, and I'm happy if you disagree with this, it's okay. But the point's going to be similar when we get to the end. It seems to me that the name is symbolic. It's actually not even about looking forward so much as it is looking backwards. It's looking backwards to where Israel made memories. It's not necessarily about looking forward and making predictions. Armageddon is mentioned not to give future military geographic positioning. It's there to give us past geographic positioning to symbolize a future spiritual reality. And just like when Israel was about to enter into the land and the kings gathered against them in Megiddo, in Judges chapter 5, the kings are going to gather against God's people again in that kind of way. It would be like us saying today that World War III is coming. We know that World War III is coming. And guess where the enemies are all fortifying and getting ready for battle? Omaha Beach. Doesn't that sound familiar to you? Haven't we fought a battle there before? Don't we remember how that battle went? Armageddon, the Mount of Megiddo, has a memory for Israel at least before, if it does have a future prediction in mind. When Israel hears, when John sees that the army of the beast, the dragon, and the false prophets, when the kings are moving toward the Euphrates, which is exactly what happened in Judges and in Second Kings, toward the Euphrates and arriving at Armageddon, anyone who knows the Old Testament is going to say, well, let them come, because we know what battles have been like there before when God fights for us. The emphasis seems to be on the spiritual rather than the physical, geographical positioning for John. Look in chapter 16, verse 12. 
The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. And I saw coming out, which could be a reference to some passages in 2 Kings where the same language is used in the battle against King Josiah. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. So from that unholy trinity, unclean spirits, demonic spirits are coming out. Verse 14, for they are demonic spirits performing signs, getting people to believe them by performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of the Almighty. And where did they assemble? They assembled them, verse 16, at that place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So that dragon from chapter 12 and the, the beast from chapter 13, that, that false prophet, out of their mouths are coming unclean spirits. And what are these unclean spirits seeking to accomplish? They're swooning the kings of the whole world to come against God and his people. The whole world, verse 14, is going to assemble at Armageddon. It doesn't seem so much to be to me as referring to a, a whole world army as much as it is symbolizing the whole world is going to gather against the saints just like foreign enemies did in the past against Megiddo, against Israel at Megiddo when they were on the way to the land in the book of Judges and their enemies met them on their way home. Spiritually speaking, the kings of the whole world will position themselves together, unified against God's people, having been swooned, having given their allegiance over to the beast, to worship of demonic idols, to worship of worldly pleasure, and it will be the kings and their nations and their cities who are going to gather against Christians, gather against those who are in Christ in totality. And here's what God is saying about their gathering and about all of their efforts they shed the blood of God's saints and prophets. Their water's going to be turned to blood. It's a picture of, their, of God's punishment, his vengeance towards them. They cursed God. They did not repent. God's wrath then is true and just. They gathered together, united at Megiddo against God and his people, and God overcame them finally and forever by his power through creation. Look at chapter 16. Look at what happens when they gather. It isn't even really a battle. It isn't even... It's not even like a, a news report. Well, how'd the battle go? Well, it's pretty one-sided. Revelation 16, look at it again. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. A loud voice came out of the temple <clears throat> from the throne saying, it's done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts. Revelation, or excuse me, chapter 11, referring to that great city as Egypt or Sodom, where Christ was crucified. That city was split into three parts. It was overcame. The cities and of the nations fell. God remembered Babylon, the great, to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. I poured out the whole cup of wine of the fury of my wrath and made Babylon, drink it all. It's what they deserve. Every island fled. No mountains were to be found. Great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on the people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. What does this mean for us? That God is acting this way 
towards those who worship the beast. Number one, his judgments are true and just. It is what they deserve. Settle it in your heart that it is not wrong what God does. And deep down, we all think someone deserves something. Everyone deserves something. We have our own ideals about what we deserve. We think a lot of people are getting better than what they deserve. We're most likely often to think that because of the sin and pride in our own hearts, that we most often think that we are getting worse than we deserve. But every time we get angry, every time we are impassioned about anything, you can be sure that deep down in our hearts is the belief that someone deserves something. It is usually that we deserve something that we are not getting. Respect, obedience, confirmation to, conformation to our lives and our desires. To, to undo the ideas of deserving and justice would be to un, entirely, completely unravel all government, all laws, everything, the ordering of our entire society even though we don't all agree on what they are, it's based on the foundation that we all believe people deserve something. Criminals deserve something. Free people deserve something. Everyone deserves something. We might disagree on what that is, but we believe that there's a deservingness about being human. Sin, and part of sin from the beginning is saying that we deserve better than what God is giving us. That was the heart of Adam and Eve in sin. That was the first temptation. We deserve something. We should have something that God's withholding from us. We want something that God is not giving to us. The good news from the beginning, on the whole, that mankind has thought they deserve more from God when we actually deserve more wrath from God. And what God gives us instead of the wrath that we really deserve, what he has given us over and over and over in human history is more grace and mercy than we deserve. All this to say this passage, Revelation 16, is telling everyone, proclaiming to everyone that God's justice, his judgments are true and just. Test them. Test them to see if what God doing is sporadic, irrational, unjust, or if it is fitting. This is not unlike that passage which has disturbed so many over the years, that passage of Scripture which has confused so many. King Saul, the king of Israel, was asked by God in 1 Samuel chapter 15 to destroy Israel's enemies, a command he would not obey in, in full. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 3, speaking to the first official king of Israel, God says, Now go and strike Amalek, and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And people read this and think, well, I'm out. I am out. I mean, God is horrible. What kind of gross, inhumane, evil God is this? Just running around wanting to kill everyone. But the passage is actually about God fulfilling his word to protect his people, to bring his people into his land to protect his people from their enemies and from his own enemies. It's about God not forgetting. It's about God keeping his word. Just one verse before that command 
To Saul, it says this in 1 Samuel 15, 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Does that sound familiar? God's people on the way home to the land and the place that God has given him and their enemies gathering in their way. And God's saying, I will get you home. I will repay enemies who oppose me. What God is doing in that passage is honoring his name among his people. He's keeping his promise. He's proving himself to be the faithful God, the just God, the holy God, the powerful God, the not forgetting God. So the very moment God is proving his justice, it's so easy for people to to read and think God is unjust. That's what's happening in Revelation chapter 16. God is doing what he said that he would do. God is responding to millennia upon millennia of the world rejecting him as God. And when we read this, we should not put God's justice on trial. We should immediately put our sense of justice and our sense of deserving on trial. Notice who is proclaiming that God is just. Who is proclaiming that God's judgment is true and just in Revelation chapter 16? It's the angels in heaven themselves and it's the altar itself. This is heaven's declaration to you for you to learn, for us to know, for the world to know that what God is doing is true and just as heaven declares. This is not there for us to kind of scratch our heads and say, hmm, I wonder what God's really like. But to say that the declaration from heaven is true and good and right, that God is just to do this. If you've been at Millwood Baptist Church some this year, you might be thinking, well, I thought that Jesus and God and everyone in the Trinity were all gentle and lowly at heart. I thought God was nice all the time. And that that was the totality of his being. The answer to us is yes, that Christ, that God in Christ is more than happy. It is the joy of the Trinity, the joy of Christ to come have died on the cross for sinners and to save us from sin and death. If you will believe in Jesus Christ today that he was crucified as God's son for us, God is happy for you to be saved. He's not disappointed that you got away. That you got saved and all he, what he really wanted to do was pour out his wrath and oh, you, you found Jesus. He really wants people to be saved. He really sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, pour out the wrath on his son so that we could be free and forgiven of our sin. God did that out of his own desire. Know that God is the one who's seeking to save us in history. So often we think that the situation is this. We want to be so badly saved. We are seeking salvation, but God is just unwilling to give us the salvation that we deserve. But in reality, God has provided salvation through Jesus Christ, a salvation that we do not deserve, and we are too often unwilling to believe it and repent. Instead, we worship the beast, we worship the rulers of the world, we trust in kings and nations and the military and the pleasures of the earth for our fulfillment. What it means to be a Christian is to believe that when Jesus died on the cross for sinners, that God did two things at one time. Number one, God was gracious to man. He forgives them and he is merciful toward them. He is eager to see them redeemed from the hostility and from their sinfulness towards him. He wants people to believe in Jesus. He paid for our sin with Jesus' blood. But at the same time, God was just. 
God did not just wave a, a magic wand and say, hey, all is forgiven, all is forgotten. That would be unjust of him. He would kind of have to unbecome himself because he is just and he, he is holy. So he was gracious by sending Jesus on the cross, but by Jesus receiving our wrath for us, God was just. He was just. Avoid the wrath of God today by believing that Jesus Christ bore it for you. God loves heaven rejoices when sinners realize we deserve God's wrath, but Jesus drank it. Isn't that what he said? Father, if there's any other way, yet not my will, but yours. And he drank the cup of God's wrath on the cross so that we could be forgiven. Church, listen. Don't be embarrassed about God's wrath. Don't be shy about those worshiping the beast, receiving what they deserve. This is not a secret doctrine which we only tell people who join our church and drink the Kool-Aid. Metaphorically speaking, we don't serve Kool-Aid. We don't, we don't do that here. Other religions may act like this. Talk to Buddhists, talk to Muslims, especially talk to Mormons. And you'll have a hard time in your first conversation understanding what they really think about a few things. Sadly, sometimes it's like this with Christians. Well, what's God really like? Well, I don't want to tell you about the wrath things. I don't want to scare you away. Well, we, also, we ought to be wise. We ought to be salt in our language. We ought to be grace in our language. But Christians, it should not be so that we are embarrassed of this, that we are shy about this. If there is no fear in receiving what we deserve, then there will be no joy in receiving in Christ that which we do not deserve. We can't. That's the meaning of the gospel. That what we deserve, we do not get. And Christ took on what he did not deserve, that we might be forgiven of our sins. Don't be shy about phrases like, it is what they deserve. Because it's what we all deserve. It's what I deserve. It's what you deserve. It's what everyone deserves. Because if we go back, we don't have time this morning, go back to Revelation chapter 12 through 14, there are two groups on the earth, those who worship the beast and those who worship Christ. That's it. It's not like the, the, the beast represents kind of this one little nation up here in Russia or something like that. It's everyone who forsakes Christ. There's only two marks to get in the entire world from now until Jesus returns, the mark of the beast or the mark of the Father on your forehead. Don't be shy about wrath. It's the beginning of our boast about grace, about Christ. What God is doing and pouring out the bowls of wrath is true and just, and it is what they deserve. Do not find yourself saying, well, that is not what they deserve. It's what we all deserve. What we don't deserve, what we don't deserve is Christ incarnate, Pure, holy, alien righteousness coming to heaven, from heaven to earth to pay our debt. Holy, loving, gentle, dying in our place, suffering the wrath of God himself so that we might be saved from it. That's what we don't deserve. Paul says it like this in Romans. In Christ, God has 
Christ is both just, he's faithful to himself in his wrath and his justice, and God is the justifier. He is gracious to sinners by justifying us, calling us righteous, though we don't deserve it. So we must leave this chapter loving the justice of God. Not just kind of putting up with it and be like, well, yeah, that's back there somewhere. You got to deal with Love it. Be excited that God is going to glorify himself by exacting his justice on the earth and be all the more attuned to be all the more grateful and be all the more vocal in evangelism about Jesus bearing the wrath for us. Go back in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. This passage is showing us that God is true and just. This is what they deserve. They cursed God. They spilled the blood of saints and prophets. And God is avenging the blood of the saints. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 through 11, jumping back into the seals. Not a ton of time for context here, but just remember this section. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, which shows back up in our passage again, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. Sounds familiar? Same group of people. Those blood of the saints and the prophets were shed for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out. What were they doing there under the altar? Cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The answer to the question is in Revelation chapter 6 here, next verse, just a little longer. A little longer. The mood through Revelation towards saints is, hold on, a little longer. I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. Endure. Revelation 16 is not necessarily answering the when. In as precise times and places as we might desire. But it is telling us that the end is sure. God will avenge the blood of the saints and the prophets. And we ought to... It ought to be heavy for us to consider it. Don't be discouraged, Christian, because the final justice of God is still delayed. Still delayed. But it is sure. God is avenging the blood, and he will of the saints. You ever watch football games? When it gets to the fourth quarter, you see, see guys raise their hand. What do they do going from the third quarter to the fourth quarter? They put their four up, right? Letting everyone know it's fourth quarter. Fourth quarter. We're coming to the end here. This is the end of the end. I wish Christians had 16 fingers so that we could show each other 16 Revelation 16 is coming. Maybe we can do like four times four, okay? Maybe two fours. Chapter 16 is coming. This is the fourth quarter, and it is coming close. God is going to avenge the enemies of the church. And God is opposing pride and idolatry. Go with me in your Bibles to chapter 13, verse 3 through 4. God bringing about his wrath on those who on the beast and those who worship the beast. If you go back to Revelation chapter 3, verse 13 through 14, our introduction to the beast, we see that those people who bow down to the beast, who worshiped him, who has the dragon's power, so we've got the spiritual dragon with the beast who's interacting with men on earth. Revelation 13, verse 3 through 4, they worshiped the dragon 
for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast. Here's what they said when they worshiped the beast. Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? Revelation 16 is saying, who is like the beast? Who is like the beast? No, 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 no. Who's like Yahweh? Who is like God of the heavens and the earth? Who, when he goes to battle, uses the sun? Who shakes the earth under the feet of his enemies to overcome them? Who is like the beast? Revelation 16, God is saying there is no one like God by overcoming the beast and those who worship him. Go back to our chapter, chapter 16, verse 15. We see a little interlude there. Snuck in between the sixth and the seventh bowls of wrath is this message to the church. Although it's not secret, this is kind of like a, I kind of feel like this is kind of a, a clandestine note slipped from one passing soldier to his comrade who's in prison. And the comrade opens the note and says, we're, we're, we're coming soon. We're coming soon. Just wait a little longer. We're coming, we're coming soon. And Jesus says in chapter 16, verse 15, he speaks directly to the church out of the seven bowls being poured out right before the very end, right as the army is gathering at Armageddon, which we actually sang in our song this morning, a phrase. When the enemies are gathered, when they're there together, Jesus says, behold, I'm coming like a thief. I'm coming like a thief. I'm going to come quickly and suddenly and swiftly. There will be no rearranging the battlefield at Armageddon. There will be no more chances to repent. There will be no more second thoughts. He will be here in an instant, and it will be decisive for eternity. This is the gospel of the church and a warning to the lost. Jesus is returning to earth, a sudden and soon return. This is the gospel. We don't have to go from this passage trying to find our gospel application. This is the gospel. As surely as Jesus was God and born of a virgin, as surely as Jesus lived a sinless life and died on the cross, as surely as Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, and as surely as Jesus ascended to sit at the right hand of God, surely Jesus is coming again. That's the gospel. That we aren't left here to doom and wrath along with those who worship the beast. The gospel is not that Jesus died for our sins. And there's kind of the extra doctrine. There's that eschatology. There's that revelation stuff about Jesus coming back one day. And everyone has different opinions about that. And you, might, you might think this and you might think that. It's the gospel. It is the gospel itself that he is coming back. Surely, suddenly, swiftly. What he is going to do when he comes is spoken of in greater detail in the chapters to come. But it is the gospel that he is coming as king of kings and lord of lords with a sword in his mouth. The thief, Jesus comes like a thief in the night. And here is his instruction to the church in the meantime. Chapter 16, verse 15. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Stay awake. Don't go to sleep 
while God's pouring out His wrath on those who worship the beast in time until the end. Right now, Russia is poised to invade Ukraine. I might have mentioned this already. I've been waking up every day the last week. Just first thing I do is Google Russia the last few mornings. I want to see what's going on, what's the news this hour. An invasion seems imminent, but with Putin, you never know. I think about what it's like to be in the Oval Office or to be in the cabinet, the stream of news that's constantly coming in. That even while our president sleeps, even while our generals take a nap at night in between strategizing and thinking about making war plans, and someone's always watching. We're awake. As Americans, at least that's our hope right now. That we're awake as a nation as to what's going on in the world. Jesus is telling us, I'm coming like a thief. Stay awake. Don't go to sleep at night. Stay awake and watch. Blessed is the one who is awake. Blessed is the one who is awake at the hour that a thief might come. That, that sudden time, that, that deepness into the night. Stay awake. Though, though the trial of the earth before Christ's return would seem like it is lasting deep into the night and like he may not come. He will come like a thief quickly, suddenly. Don't go to sleep. Don't go to sleep on Christ. Friends, that's what it means to get together as a church. You ever try to stay awake with someone together? Try to keep someone else awake with you at night? Right? In my house, you just sit down to watch a movie and it's hopeless. Someone's going to sleep real soon. You ever try to keep someone else awake at night? When we gather as a church, we're elbowing each other. Don't go to sleep. Don't go to sleep. It may be deep in the night, but he is coming. Gathering as a church is a part of us staying alert together. It's like getting the weekly briefings on what God is doing in the world by hearing from his revelation in God's word. And we've heard this command many times in our church over the years, Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, but listen to its last emphasis. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And listen, heighten the importance, encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The closer we get to Christ coming, the more we need to be encouraged together. Gathering regularly as a church has end times, last days application. It keeps us stirred up. It keeps us spiritually awake. It keeps us aware of God's plans and the comings of Christ. It strengthens us. Don't be surprised, church, when you forsake the church, forsake your own discipleship and the discipleship of others, that you find your guard down spiritually, that you find yourself asleep Asleep to the things of Christ, asleep to the hope in Christ, asleep to the strength of Christ. Don't be surprised that you begin to find yourself embarrassed about God's wrath because you've not dwelled on his justice in the gospel of Christ. Don't be surprised when you forsake the ministry of the word and the singing of the church that you find yourself given to secret sin, asleep spiritually. Stay alert. Gather with the church. Listen to extra sermons. Read books on spiritual matters with others. Get up early and pray. Gather for discipleship. Read your Bible every single day. Every Saturday, the Wall Street Journal paper copy comes, gets thrown onto my 
driveway. I love to open up the paper copy, although sometimes I've given to the digital form. But I just love opening and seeing what's going on in the world. Well, what's happening this week? It's a moment just to pause and think about what's going on. Maybe not go to sleep on what's going on in the world. Open your Bible. Read the headlines every day. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Stay awake. Stay ready. In chapter 16, verse 15, the last part, keep your robes on. Revelation chapter 16, verse 15. Some of you are thinking, I hope he explains is this is literal or metaphorical. Bless the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Well, this just keeps getting weirder and weirder. John just told us Jesus is coming. Now he's saying don't get caught naked. What does Jesus mean? Keep your garments on. Revelation chapter 3, verse 18, Jesus speaks to the church in Laodicea. He calls them, though they are rich in worldly things, to come by white garments so that they might clothe themselves and they might hide the shame of their nakedness. To the richest church of the seven, Jesus says, come by white clothes that can cover you spiritually, things that only Christ can cover and cost for you. Revelation 7, that great multitude that no one could number from every nation, tribe, and language are seen standing before the throne. They are given white robes, robes which have been made white by the blood of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 19, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, it is said that it is granted to her, the bride, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure, the fine linen being the righteous deeds of the saints. Revelation twenty two fourteen. blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life. You don't wash your robes, you don't have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. The robes seem to represent through revelation the righteousness of Christ by his blood and righteous, obedient living by the saints, the deeds of the saints. Christ's righteousness by which they are able to enter and eat the tree of life, by the, the way that they are to be covered Jesus is saying, stay awake. The moment is coming soon. Keep being about righteousness. Keep putting on righteousness every day. Keep pursuing righteousness. Do not be given to the worship of the beast, not by the proclamation of your mouth or by the living of your life. Don't let, your found, don't let yourself be found in secret sin, financial sin, Sexual sin, relationship sin, substance sin, anger sin. Like it says in Colossians, take all these things off. Take all these things off. Be found when Christ comes in his righteousness. By trusting and believing in his righteousness and by living it out. Let Christ find you like this. Because the next thing after Christ, coming like a thief is the end. Chapter 16, verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air <coughs> and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. Flashes of lightning, peals thunder, earthquake, which has never been seen. The city was split, the nations fell. God remembered Babylon. No one's getting away. Babylon drinks the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. 
Islands fled away. Mountains were no more. Hailstones from heaven. Christ will come, and the end will come after. Christ will come, and then God will bring the whole world, the whole world as we know it, to its appointed end. It will be done. Done. It will be done. And they will have received what they deserved. And if you're in Christ, we will have received what we have not deserved. Every nation and city, the old enemy, Babylon, the appointed end. Where is history going? Where is the world going? What's God moving history toward? God is pouring and will pour out His wrath on those who forsake Christ, forsake God, and worship the beast in its image. God will pour out His wrath continually on those who do not repent and give Him glory, and He'll be just for doing so. God will consummate His wrath on the earth. In the end, finally, those who are in Christ, who believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, will be saved. In short, Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Believe in Jesus Christ. Be saved from the wrath of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, for revealing to us your plans, your justice, your nature, your holiness, that we might know you for who you really are. Help us to know us, ourselves, as we really are. Father, maybe today you help us just go from disbelieving to believing. Maybe today by your spirit and by your word you would help us wake up again. Be about righteousness, forsaking sin, looking forward to the day when Christ comes again and justice will finally and forever be accomplished. Father, as we look at the cross, as we look at this chapter, help us leave today with the weight the weight of what it means to deserve wrath. Help us leave with the thankfulness in our hearts, the lightness in our hearts that Christ has drank the cup of your wrath for us. Father, thank you for time together as a church. May we be encouraged, strengthened here by the singing today, by this praying, by your word preached. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.